0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge.
1: And I'm feeling good. We just got home from our Israel tour on Friday night. And uh, yeah, it was a huge blessing to be in uh, the Holy Land and uh, touring and really, I think in a sense, watching the Bible come alive and connecting the various points of Scripture together through our time there. We had a great group and we're abundantly blessed. We started out our time, our 10 days there in Israel, in the northern region of Israel, up in the region of the Galilee where two thirds of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John occurred. So it was great to be able to just get a sense for what that time was like. You know, the lake hasn't changed a whole lot since the time of Jesus, it's still the same lake. So you're able to really get a sense for what it would have been like for Jesus to be traversing that area, conducting his ministry. And we got to see some beautiful sites, some sites I hadn't been to or that they had not yet discovered Uh, from uh, the last time I was there, almost 15 years ago. So it was a great blessing to be there in the north, and then you go down into the south for the second half of the trip, mostly centered around and and staying in the city of Jerusalem. And when you get to Jerusalem, one of the first things that you do is you go to the Mount of Olives where Jesus is going to return, uh, overlooking the Temple Mount, uh, and it just takes your breath away to be thinking about the place where Christ will one day set his feet and begin to rule and reign here on earth, bringing in everlasting peace. And uh, for the rest of the time, you're mostly in Jerusalem and down in that region, and it was just a powerful time uh, together. Like I said, the Bible just kind of coming together uh, during that uh, stretch. And uh, we, uh, you're always given a guide when you go to Israel. Someone who really knows the lay of the land is able to explain each site that you're at. And the two times I've gone previously, uh, though my guides were incredible, uh, they weren't believers. But this time we were blessed with having an incredible guide who was a Messianic Jew, a believer in Jesus. So it, he really made my job easy because there were so many sites, I was like, well, I don't need to say anything anymore. Because he just knew his stuff and he was able to share the New Testament perspective as well. And one day we were driving in the bus together. I sat up in front with him wherever we were going. We had 25 or so people, you know, that were with us. And we were driving along and I was sharing with him his name was Ares, And I said, Ares, you know, well, I'm here in Israel... You know, at home, we record our online church service on Thursdays, but we'll still be here in Israel during our normal recording slot. So our guys at home sent me here with a little bit of gear so that I could just record a real lo-fi, janky hotel room version of the teaching for this coming weekend. I said, but you know, we're here in Israel, if there's any like kind of quiet, peaceful, scenic spot in Jerusalem that I could break away from the group and just record the teaching on my own, uh, let me know, and I told him, I said, you know, we're in Nehemiah chapter nine, it happens uh, in Jerusalem where Ezra and the people read the Bible for a while and then they pray this big prayer to God, and he looked at me and he said, well, would you like to teach it where that happened? So our group got together and we had a church service on the southern steps of Jerusalem where Ezra had read this passage to the people and they prayed, uh, where the day of Pentecost most likely uh, occurred, where thousands of believers got baptized, where Jesus walked into Jerusalem as a, both a child and as a grown man leading his disciples. And it was a real surreal uh, moment for us. So. We asked Ares, you know, we've been going through Nehemiah and we've had someone from the congregation reading the passage of scripture for us. And so we asked Ares to be our scripture reader for this weekend. And uh, so we have that part of the video. I'll teach the passage to you live, but we have the video of him reading the scripture. English is his second language. So there were some times he struggled a little bit. He's reading from a translation that's different than ours. So just try to Follow along, but I will say this: He's crushed all the Jewish names (laughs) better than anyone else that's done the reading. So, uh, pay attention to the screen, and then I'll come back up and teach you from
0: Nehemiah chapter nine. Nehemiah nine, Nehemiah nine. Now, on the twenty-fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting, in sackcloth, and with dust on their heads. Then those of the Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners. And they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord of the God for the fourth of the day. And for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Then Joshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Eboni, Serabiah, Bani, And uh, Chanani stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with the loud voice of the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Petaliah, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Kasdim and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites and the Girgashites. The gift to give it to the descendants You have performed your words for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them, so you made a name for yourself as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty water. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Shabbat and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought them water out of the rock for their thirst. You told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. But they and your fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they made a model, uh, molded calf for themselves, you said this is your God that brought you out of Egypt and worked great provocations. Yet in their uh, manifold mercies yet in your manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness the pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go you also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Shihon, the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of O king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told them, their fathers, to go and possess So the people went in and possessed the land and subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already uh, dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebellion against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who testified against them, to turn them to yourself, and they worked great provocation. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies, who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, they when they... Cry to you, you heard from heaven, and uh, according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you, therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments but sinned against your judgment which is which if a man does he shall live by them and they struck their uh, shoulders stiffened their necks and would not hear yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsaken them. For you are God, gracious and merciful. Now, therefore, your God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people. From the days of the kings of Assyria until this day, however, you are just in all that has befallen us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom, or in the many good things that you gave them, or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers, to eat its fruits and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it, and it yields much increase to the kings. You have said over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over the bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. All because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it.
1: All right. Yeah. That was a mouthful. Let's pray, Father, what an amazing prayer these ancient people prayed to you on that day. And there's so much there, we pray that we would learn from it, Lord, as they learned from you and your word on that day. Father, we lift up heirs to you and pray that you'd bless, Lord, the ministry you've given to him as he leads people throughout the Holy Land and shows them different sites where your word unfolded. We pray for his family, Lord, that they would all come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Savior. And uh, Lord, we pray that you bless him. Father, we take a moment this morning as well. I just reflect on some pastors who are in Ukrainian towns that are under attack right now that I've been in contact with this last week and a half. And Ask, Lord, as they're staying, remaining, and in bomb shelters, and praying, and trying to minister to people or who, who are hurting, that you would stand with our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially, Lord, and the nation as a whole. And Father, for those uh, churches that are in other countries surrounding Ukraine that are taking in uh, fellow church members and trying to provide a place of refuge for them, or non-believers as well. We pray, Lord, that you'd use them as a place of comfort and encouragement for people whose lives have been turned upside down in a moment. But Lord, we come to you today, and we ask that you teach us and speak to us uh, from your word. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. The well, last time we were in the book of Nehemiah, we were in Nehemiah chapter 8, where Nehemiah, after having built the walls in 52 days and after having repaired the gates of the city, he built something else. He built a wooden platform for a priest scribe named Ezra to stand on so that he could read the Bible to God's people. It was a revival moment. For six hours, we read in Nehemiah chapter eight, the word of God was read and also explained to the people. Various Levites going out into the congregation and explaining the word of God to everybody who was listening. And so they read it, they had it explained to them, and the people in Nehemiah chapter eight responded in three ways, you might remember this. The first way that they responded was with sorrow, mourning, because what they read in the Bible was such a far cry from what they were at that time. You know, they'd been reading the law of God, they saw all of these testimonies of who God had made them to be, but they knew that their practical everyday experience was so far different from what they'd read, and so they began to mourn. But you might remember what the leadership said to them in that moment. Ezra said it, the Levites said it, and even Nehemiah came in and said it. They told the people, look, this is not supposed to be a time for mourning. This should be a time for great joy. God's not done with you. He's still working in your life. You're here right now in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. This means that God He's not finished working in your life. He's not divorced himself from you. And Nehemiah gave that short, brief little speech. He said, today, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So their mourning was replaced with joy. They began celebrating that God was still shaping and moving them. Even though they'd been faithless, God had been faithful and he was still moving in their lives and they had a lot of joy for that. Then the third movement of their response was that they looked at their calendars and they realized that they were sitting at right about the point of the Feast of Tabernacles, this feast that they would celebrate every year in the fall as a way to commemorate the time that they'd been brought out of their captivity in Egypt so many generations earlier and camped in the wilderness for a period of 40 years. And God provided for them and protected them. And they had this cool way of celebrating it where for a whole week they would live outside of their homes in little tents or booths that they built up. And the families in Israel would remember how God had been faithful to them in years past and was going to be faithful to them in their modern current time. And they'd not celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles for a long time. And so their third way of responding after mourning and then having joy was to say, man, we just read about this Feast of Tabernacles where at the time the Feast of Tabernacles is supposed to occur. And so they began obeying the Lord and they celebrated that feast. They joyfully partook in what God had designed for them. Now in this chapter we come to the point immediately after they'd celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. It says in the opening verses that this occurred on the 24th day of the month. That's a time marker that means immediately after the Feast of Tabernacles had occurred. And what the people do is they show up again to the Temple Mount, the southern steps more than likely because stairs are mentioned in this passage. And they gather together with the spiritual leadership. Probably Ezra is there, even though his name is not explicitly mentioned in this passage. It's hard to imagine a big group Bible study without Ezra being like, yo, I'm in. So Ezra was probably there, and they read the Bible for three more hours. This time, appropriately, with mourning. They're clothed in sackcloth, because they recognize that their spiritual condition is a far cry from where they were supposed to be in God's sight. So they read the Bible for three hours, and then they pray, they sing, they worship God for another three hours. And the prayer that Erez read to us today, this very lengthy prayer, is what was produced during that time together. This is what they said to God during those three hours of Prayer. And it becomes very clear as you look at this prayer. I mean, obviously, there's so many things that could be said about it. It's, you know, so many verses. So, what can we possibly glean from it? But it's very clear that they learned, they were reminded of a few things that day. God was reminding them of their story as a people. And as He reminded them of their story, they became conscious again of truths about themselves but they also became conscious of truths about God, and then finally, they became conscious of what they thought their need was in that moment. They thought what they needed to do was make a big covenant to renew the contract before God, which we'll study when we get to Nehemiah chapter 10. But I think that these three elements are all important for us today. As we've been going through the book of Nehemiah, we've been looking at it through the lens of what God did in that era is what God is always doing in the lives of his people. God is always working to renew his people. And in this passage, as God is renewing them, he's reminding them of who they are. He's reminding them of who he is. And he's reminding them of their truest need, what they really need in order to Get this job done. And so I want to think about all three of those things today from this passage. And I'll kind of dance around the text a bit because it's so lengthy. It'd be impossible to just take it verse by verse in one sitting uh, together. So the first thing that I want to draw out from the passage is what the people saw about themselves. They saw some beautiful things that God had done for them as his holy people. One of the first things that they realized about themselves, and all of these things that they saw about themselves are timeless. They're things that we can learn about ourselves in the Word as well. But one of the first things that they realized is they realized that they were God's special people. And it seems that they began learning this in the first two books of the Bible that they read in that corporate setting together, the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus. In Genesis... They said in verse six to God, they learned that God had made heaven, that he had made the heavens host, that God had made the earth, that God had made the sea, and that God had made everything in them, but that God had not stopped at creating all that they saw, but that he had also created them as his special people. They point out in verse seven and eight that God should be celebrated because he chose this man named Abram, changed his name to Abraham, and made a firm covenant, they say, with his descendants. This is one of the first things that they began to learn or relearn about themselves. We are God's special, called, created, chosen people. And look, you guys, this is one of the things that when you interact with the Bible, when you interact with God's Word, you will discover and rediscover this over and over and over again. The Word of God will have a way of communicating to you, if you're a believer, that, hey, I've called you, I've chosen you, you're mine. I've created you, I've recreated you, I've made you into a new creation in Christ Jesus. This is what I have done in your life. When believers are absent from the Bible for long periods of time, when we don't let the Bible speak into our lives for long periods of time, we tend to forget that we are his especially called people. We begin to forget that we've been chosen by the Lord. And we begin behaving like we're just any old group of people rather than the called, chosen, special people of God. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. He said, you, Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own special possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Don't truths like that one in 1 Peter 2, don't they lift you up? Don't they bring you into a higher plane? And that's what they realized as they interacted with Genesis and Exodus. Man, we're a called people. God created everything, but he created us. But not only did they realize that, they also realized that God had delivered them. You know, in verse 10, they recount the major movement in the book of Exodus of God seeing their afflictions in Egypt and coming down to do, he says, or they say, signs and wonders against Pharaoh. You know, defeating Pharaoh finally and totally at the Red Sea. So as they interacted with the word, not only did they realize that they were called and chosen, but they realized God is a God who has delivered us. We've been set free. now they weren't set free to just be free. That's a misnomer, it's a wrong reading of scripture. They were set free so that they could serve the Lord. God said through Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go that they might serve me. The idea of being free for freedom's sake is actually wrong scripturally. That's not what we should truly want. We should want the freedom to be servants of the living God, and these people began realizing this about the Lord, that God had set them free from their captivity there in Egypt, and when you read the Bible as a Christian, this same truth is going to come out to you page after page, verse after verse, chapter after chapter, because Jesus Christ came with a greater exodus than they had in the book of Exodus, amen, to set us free from sin to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We read passages like Paul saying to the Galatians in Galatians 2 verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's hard to get any freer than that. Like I'm so free, I'm dead. The old person died with Jesus, and now I'm alive with Jesus. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, when you interact with the Bible, you're going to be reminded of the great deliverance that the cross of Christ secured for you. But as they read on in the Word, they realized something else. Not only were they his special people that had been delivered by him, but they realized that God, over and over again, historically, had provided for them. In verse 13, they talk about how God provided his word to them, that Moses went up to Mount Sinai and God spoke to Moses the words of the law, the very words that they've been reading hour after hour on those southern steps. That God had also not just given them the word, but given them the Sabbath, an amazing feature of the people of Israel. Every seventh day, a day of rest, a holy day unto God. They remembered that. And they remembered how when they were in the wilderness, in verse 16 and in verse 21, that God had sustained them in the wilderness during their wilderness wandering. He gave them bread from heaven, the manna, every single day to feed them. And he gave them water from the rock. They remembered the provision of God. And look, as you interact with the word, you'll be reminded of God's provision as well. You'll re- be reminded that God is the God who knows the sparrows, that are in the field. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He uh, is able to clothe the flowers of the field with beauty, and he clothes you as well. You might remember Jesus' words that if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added unto you, but these are truths that you'll be reminded of if you go to the well of the word. And that's what these people had done as they'd interacted with the word, they were reminded God provides for us. I can't tell you how many times in my life there has been some concern. God, will you provide in this way for our church? Will you provide in this way for my family? Will you provide in this way? And as I've gone to the word, I've been reminded that God is a providing God, that God will sustain me, that God will sustain us. As Paul said to the church, that financially supported him, my God will supply every need of yours, he said in Philippians 4, 19, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. When you go to the word, you are reminded with verses like these that God will take care of you. But one other thing they realized about themselves was that they were a people who were victorious. They recalled in verse 16 that they eventually were not only set free from, ex- from Egypt in the Exodus, but that after wandering for 40 years, they went to the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised the people of Israel. It says in verse 16 that they possessed the land. And that in verse 22, God gave them kingdoms and peoples. He enabled them to take possession, it says, In verse 23, they even recall that before they got to the land of Canaan, the land of promise, God gave them victory over foreign kings, a couple of them named, Sihon and Og. And then once they got into the land, they multiplied. I mean, for a long time, it looked like this nation could not lose a battle. And they remember all those victories that God gave to them. So as they interacted with the word, they were remembering God's victory and God's power. I think a similar thing happens to us when we go to the well of God's word. We remember the power, the victory of Jesus in our lives. So they remember all these beautiful things. We're chosen by God. God has delivered us from slavery. God provides for us. And he gives us victory. He gives us power in this life. They remembered all these things. But there was something else they also remembered that is scattered throughout the whole prayer. They're like, God, you did all these amazing things in our lives. You have blessed us in all these different ways. We are a victorious, called, chosen, provided for people. But they couldn't help but also see as they'd read the Bible for hour after hour that their ancestors, even though they were all these wonderful things, they had also consistently constantly rebelled against God. And they had to be honest about this as they prayed it back to God. They're like, God, this is just what happened. And it happened in two significant moments in their history. First of all, it happened after the Exodus. In verse 16, they say, even after all that victory, even after you brought them out of Egypt, they stiffened their neck and did not obey God's commandments. They appointed a leader in verse 17 to take them back to Egypt. And they even built this golden calf and tried to worship it, tried to say, this is the God who delivered us from our slavery in Egypt. And they remembered that before God. God, this is what our ancestors did. You gave them all this victory, and still they rebelled. But they also rebelled not just after the Exodus, but after the conquests in the land of Canaan. After Joshua's era and the peace and driving out the inhabitants of the land, receiving the land that God had given to them, it says in verse 26 that they knew that their ancestors had cast the law of God behind their back and even killed his prophets who he sent to warn them about their disobedience. They knew that this cycle happened over and over again because in verse 28 they say this was repeated many times. And they'd gotten that from the word. As they read the word, they realized, man, our ancestors, even after the exodus and after the conquest, they rebelled against God over and over and over again. And I think that the people in Nehemiah's day, they were nervous. You see, they had experienced something similar. They had been set free from their captivity to the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Assyrians, and were now back in the promised land. They'd received a measure of conquest. So it's like they were in double jeopardy. They weren't just in the Exodus moment or the conquest moment. They were in both, and they were concerned. Are we gonna be like our ancestors who, though they were greatly privileged by God, rebelled against God? And to a measure, they recognized that that is exactly what they had done. In verse 33, they tell God, God, we've acted wickedly. And in verse 36, there's a key to the whole prayer, if you'd look at it in your Bibles. They pray to God, and they say, God, we are slaves today in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy. We are slaves You see, they looked at their situation and they recognized we're paying taxes to foreign kings just to be here. We had to get permission just to be here. And as we're planting our crops and doing our things, so much of what we produce, it goes to these foreign kings just so we can have the permission of being here. It's like we're not free, we're not victorious, we don't have power. There's a gap between what we're supposed to be and what we actually are. And look, I think as we go to the word, there are times we have the same exact experience, don't we? Where we look into the word and we see that Jesus has set us free. We look into the word and see that he's the great provider. We look into the word and see that we are called and chosen and elect of God. We see that he's put a name upon his children. We see that we're supposed to be a people that are walking in victory, overcoming sin. We see these things, but then temptation comes into our lives. We give in time and time again. We feel like we're on that hamster wheel of redemption followed by temptation, followed by compromise, followed by defeat and discipline and weakness, and then repentance and confession and God forgiving us afresh. We feel like we're on that wheel. And the people of Israel That was the situation they were in. This is what they learned about themselves as they went to the word of God. Now, praise God, that was not the final word, so let's see what else they learned from the passage. They learned not only about themselves, but more importantly, they learned about God. The passage is a prayer, after all, and God is the prime mover throughout the whole passage. They tell God, God, you created the world. You called Abraham. You made a covenant with him and his descendants. You delivered them from their captivity in Egypt. You spoke the law on Mount Sinai. You provided manna. You provided water. You provided miracles. You gave powerful victories over their enemies. God is the one who is doing stuff and they're celebrating God for the fact of his action in their lives. He's the focus of the story. By the way, this is why we should like the stories of the Bible. Sometimes we like the stories of the Bible because we like to put ourselves in the sandals of the characters in the stories of the Bible. And we think, I can relate. I can relate to David. I can relate to Peter. I can relate to these figures in Scripture. And when we read the stories, we're thinking about them so that we can think about ourselves. But listen, we should think about them to think about ourselves so that we can learn about God. That's where the real rescue comes from. God has put these stories in the Bible so that we have something that sticks in our mind that helps teach us not just about ourselves, but about him. And what did they learn about him through all these stories that they'd spent so many hours reading together? Well, they learned a lot, but I'll say it in three things. First of all, they learned that God is righteous. They said this to him two times in the passage. And the two times that they said to God, you're righteous or you're just, are two totally different settings. The first setting came in verse eight, if you or writing down notes, or you want to look at it in your Bible. And in verse 8, what was happening was they were celebrating the fact that God had taken this guy named Abram, changed his name to Abraham, and made a covenant with him and his descendants forever. They're celebrating that. And they say, God, you said you would do that, and you kept your promises because, verse 8, you are righteous. Don't we like that part about God? You know, God is a promise keeper. He makes his promises, and praise God, he's righteous. He's not devious, he's not unholy, he's not unrighteous. If he were, he could make promises all day long and be like, yeah, right, I'm not doing any of that. But he makes his promises, and because he's righteous, he keeps his promises. We love that about the Lord. But the second time they say that God is righteous might be a time that we're not as excited about God being righteous. It happens in verse 33. They are talking to God about the judgment, the discipline that they've been experiencing, and they say, God, you've been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. So the first time they celebrate God's righteousness is because he keeps his promises. The second time they celebrate God's righteousness is because he had disciplined them. He had been faithful to discipline them for their disobedience to him. I think for a lot of people in our modern era, we crave or wish we could delete this part about God. And we like the promise-keeping God, Well, we don't as much like the God who says, hey, I'm gonna hold you accountable for the decisions that you make in life. Many people think that God would be a better version of himself if he were all accepting without any standard of justice whatsoever. We like the God that makes a promise to bless, but not the one who makes promises to hold us accountable. In other words, we like it when God serves us but we struggle a little bit to serve him. But that's the reality. That's what we need to be. And at this moment, these people recognize God's righteousness. They said, God, you are right in everything that you do. Every decision that you make, it is perfect. It is flawless because of who you are. You are righteous. What a powerful thing to learn about God, to say, God, I trust your decisions. I trust the way that you do things because you are right. But a second thing that they learned about God is that God is merciful. This appears a few times in their prayer. Verse 17 is the first place. They say, God, you're gracious and merciful. In verse 28, they confess that past generations had been delivered because of God's great mercies. And in verse 31, they conclude, in your mercies, You did not make an end of them or forsake them. You're gracious and merciful, God. And what they were confessing with God's mercy is they were saying, God, you withheld some of your judgment. You know, in previous generations, if they had received all of your judgment, we wouldn't be here anymore. But you withheld some of your judgment, you were merciful. Even when their sins were at their worst, God held back from the full weight of his disciplinary hand. God was unwilling, they saw, to divorce himself from them. He still pursued them. This was his mercy. The prophet Hosea is a great example of this merciful part of God's nature. Hosea, the prophet, was married to a wayward woman. She preferred prostitution over marriage to Hosea. And Hosea was a good man. He was a good husband. He was kind. He was loving. He cared for her whenever he had a chance. He even pursued her when she left him for many other men. And what God said is that Hosea's marriage to his bride was like God's marriage to the people of Israel. They were faithless so often. They kept turning to many other lovers. But God persistently extended his mercy, and he would not leave them. Instead, he pursued them. God was merciful. And we praise God for his mercy. Amen? We praise God that he doesn't say, I'm done with you. You've been unfaithful, but he, with his mercy, pursues us. And finally, a third thing they realize about God is that he's gracious. This is the best of all of them. And my dad used to tell me that God's mercy is when he doesn't give us the judgment that we fully deserve, but that his grace is when he gives us goodness that we do not deserve. And that's what they realized about God. That God was righteous but also gracious And that part of his grace was that he was forgiving. They said in verse 17, God, you're ready to forgive. You're gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And in verse 32, they ended the prayer by saying, therefore our God is the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. So as they thought about God, they realized his grace. He was giving them so much, including another chance to flourish as a people, and I hope that you can see as you interact with the Bible that this is who God is, that he's righteous, but also merciful and gracious, extending himself for his people. Okay, this led them to a conclusion, and this is the last thing I wanna tell you about from this passage. You know, they saw themselves, they saw God But thirdly, they also were reminded about their need. And uh, the way that they thought about it was they they thought, well, here we are, we're enslaved, like I pointed out in verse 36. And they thought about the depravity of their situation, and they thought, this isn't right. We shouldn't be like this. And they thought to themselves, so what do we need? What, What do we need, and is there anything that we need to do? And... Their conclusion was the best conclusion that they could make at that time with the understanding that they had. Their conclusion was that they needed to revive the covenant that God had made with them. That's why the text ends in verse 38 with, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Now, When we get to chapter 10, we're going to think about and look at the details of the covenant. But I'll give you a quick overview of it. Overview of the covenant was they said, God, we realize that we've been marrying unbelievers. And those unbelievers have been introducing false gods into the camp, so we're going to stop doing that. That was one part of their covenant. It was basically their way of saying, God, we're going to relationally do the right thing. It was kind of like a sexual commitment. We're going to hold to a biblical sexual ethic. The second part of their covenant, they said, God, it's clear, we've not been keeping the Sabbath. You told us to shut it down. Every seventh day, we've not been doing that. We've been open for business. We've been buying and selling with the people around us. On the Sabbath day, we're gonna stop doing that. We're gonna start keeping the Sabbath. And then lastly, they committed to God. They said, God, we're sorry, we have not been giving you the sacrifices and offerings that your word tells us that we should be giving to you. And we're gonna start doing that immediately. We're going to start giving to you what you have told us that we should give to you. They made this covenant to God. And by the way, this covenant, this vow, this contract that they made with God, it was abundantly good. It was the right decision. There's a Christian element of that covenant that we should make with God as well. But the bummer is that they totally did not keep that covenant. I don't mean to spoil the book of Nehemiah for you, but I'm about to the end of the book, Nehemiah goes away for a long period of time, reports back to his boss in Persia, and he comes back after a number of years. And what he discovers is that they were breaking all three vows they made to God. They're intermarrying with unbelievers. They're not keeping the Sabbath. They're open for business. And they're not giving God the offerings that his word tells them that they should offer. And Nehemiah freaks out. He responds. I mean, it's, he, he goes, he's very intense. He doesn't just cry about it and pray privately like maybe Ezra would have done. Instead, he confronts people. He starts ripping out beard hairs and stuff. I mean, it's a real intense moment. And that's how the book of Nehemiah ends. It's a terrible ending. There's no like, and then there was a great revival, and the people of God were faithful to God ever after the end. No, it just ends with like, I came back, they were terrible, it's over. <laughs> and the thing about the book of Nehemiah is that it's hard for us to see it because we got so many Old Testament books that come after it in the way we've organized our Bibles. But for the Jews, the book of Nehemiah is the last book of the Old Testament. It's the last historical book of the Old Testament. It's the final description of what life was like in Israel. And it's kind of like this loud trumpet blast from God saying, you just can't do it. You can't do it. God had told them over and over again through his prophets that they needed something better than just a contract, but that they needed a new covenant that they could not do what they covenanted to do, but that they needed to be changed from the inside out. He had said in Ezekiel 36, he said, their day is coming, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So he's saying, I'm gonna put my spirit inside of you. I'm gonna change you from the inside out. You'll actually do my rules, because my spirit's inside of you. He prophesied something similar in Jeremiah 31. He said, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law inside them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, you should know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. But God writing his law, not on tablets of stone, but on their hearts. And when Jesus came, that's exactly what he introduced. He introduced a new covenant. He said in the Last Supper, when he took the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for you, my covenant for you. This is what Jesus introduced when he came. This new covenant is what these people really needed. So what they needed, they really couldn't recognize on that day. But we can recognize it as we look back at their experience. We need something inward, something that changes us from the inside out. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is passed away, behold, the new has come so listen when we find ourselves in the bible or in real life as a called chosen people for whom god has fought yet our experiences that were enslaved to sin we have to recognize what we what we're needing is the new covenant when we find ourselves in the same old spin cycle of sin discipline repentance and renewal leading again to more sin we have to get back to a new covenant relationship with God, one where we simply and beautifully abide in Christ, love him, and where he continues to change us, transform us from the inside out. And I'm so pleased to be talking about this this morning because it's exactly what Christina and myself want to teach the men and women tonight about how Jesus Christ restores us He's the one who produces this in our lives because we are now in the new covenant era that these people so desperately needed.
0: Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.